Thank you uh, to everyone uh, for being here this evening. Obviously, thanks to the uh, Elizabeth Stewart James Grant Trust. Uh, it's wonderful to engage these discussions. And when I think about engaging the mind, and we think about engaging the mind, as we do so often at the Darden School, it's an interactive bi-directional experience. Um, Catherine Mull is here. I'm going to embarrass her. She happens to be an alum. Um, she also happens to be someone who took some time with me recently to sit down and talk with me about Danville and some of the activities that you all have had going on. And it always helps to ground a discussion that you're going to have in some relevant knowledge. And so I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, and it's not because she's our only alum in the room. Um, <laughs> what I also want to say is I think it's absolutely appropriate to have this, and again, I want to say discussion, engage discussion with all of you, because my work is about economic development in challenging areas. I've got one correction I need to make. I actually uh, am running what is the Taylor Murphy domestic activity. Um, Taylor Murphy, anyone know who Taylor Murphy was? He was the treasurer of the uh, Commonwealth of Virginia under Colgate Darden. And um, the, the Murphy family, both in multiple generations, has been committed to community service within the Commonwealth. Uh, Taylor Murphy passed away in November of 1962. And in December of 62, the, the Darden family uh, gave money to create the Taylor Murphy Center with a mission to talk about economic development and business development within the Commonwealth. I'll be taking over that activity as it focuses on Certainly globally competitive firms, but globally competitive firms that are here in the Commonwealth. Um, and so the, the conversation with you, with Danville, with uh, the greater southwestern portion of Virginia, the Piedmont area, the border area, uh, those are conversations I want to be a part of. I, I, pro I should tell you a couple of other things about Welcome Home. I haven't been in Danville in uh, 20 years. Uh, a part that is not on my uh, CV is that I went to high school at Brookville High School in Campbell County. Uh, that I spent time at GW Danville getting uh, destroyed in football. Um, and I spent time at Tunstall running uh, track meets where we did a little better. Um, those of you who might know, well, celebrities from the area, Phil Vassar is a name some of you may know. Phil was on the same track team with me years ago. Uh, so I, in fact, have been in Danville. Somebody asked when the last time you were in Danville. It's about 25 years ago, and it was not a pleasant bus ride back home. Um, but I'm glad to be here tonight. And so as much as I, uh, frankly, have been a lot of places and done a lot of things uh, in thinking about these questions, um, it is important to me to do this work in the Commonwealth uh, for reasons that are personal. So. What I hope we'll do today is we'll have a conversation. The title, Entrepreneurs as Change Agents. Um, this is a very, very common theme in the work that I do. This notion that there are entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial communities that bring about change. And um, you might expect I'm going to come to you with lots of stories about people like Andrew Carnegie. Okay. Andrew Carnegie, as some of you will know, is in fact one of the cornerstone uh, businessmen in the U.S., which you may not also know. Where's the librarian? Andrew Carnegie is, in fact, the father of the library system in the United States. And uh, libraries around the country were actually sponsored and funded by Andrew Carnegie. Um, I could stand up and talk to you tonight about Bill Gates. I could talk to you about the work that he's done in fostering money in the Gates Foundation. We could talk about Warren Buffett. We could talk about that type of thing. We actually aren't going to talk about that. We're going to talk about entrepreneurs you may not have heard of. We're going to talk about communities and the way uh, they contribute to the development of an entrepreneurial climate. Is that all right? Does that mean anyone wants to leave? Um, well, to get us started, I'm going to, we, we at the Darden School, Catherine could tell you, we are a case study pedagogy school. We believe in uh, this discussion that occurs when one is able to engage a problem. And so um, I just can't break out of some old molds. So 
you'll note that the structure of the conversation tonight is around cases. I'm going to make the case for entrepreneurship. I'm going to follow that with the case for community. I'm going to follow that with the case for connection. We're going to talk about capital. And then we're going to talk about these exemplary stories. So I think I'm saving the best for last. But I'm going to come to you with each one of these cases. And what I hope we can do is come to some conclusions about whether these elements matter. One of the things I like to do, and I think it's, a, it's an error sometimes from uh, speakers, is they arrive from wherever they've come. They come from Charlottesville, and they don't spend any time finding out about the place in which they're speaking. So I'll tell you that I did a little bit of my homework about you, and I want to share a little bit of what I learned. I don't know that what I'm going to share is going to be that surprising to you, uh, but I think it will be things that will help frame some of the reasons why I think an entrepreneurial discussion is important. And it'll let you know that I've spent some time thinking about um, Danville and Pennsylvania County and the greater area. Um, so one of the first things I think about when I think about an area when I'm getting sitting down to examine, because I tend to work from an economic frame, is what sectors drive the local economy and what sectors drive employment. Um, and job growth. And what I can tell you shouldn't surprise you that the top three for the Danville, Pennsylvania County area are manufacturing, retailing, and healthcare. I could also tell you that those are the same three sectors that drive uh, the Commonwealth as a whole. Note the ordering is a little different. Now, um, this tells me at a first glance that, well, what I should expect to find in the greater Commonwealth I'd also find in Danville. Well, what I first learned when I take a look at the data is that um, about 54% of the employment base in this area is structured around those three clusters. And what I find is uh, that manufacturing, knowing a little bit about the history of the area, we're talking tobacco, we're talking textiles, we're talking about automobiles, um, or at least tires, as an example. Um, and so uh, these traditionally have been the sectors that you'd find. And I want you to just focus for a second on, again, the ordering, but also the percentages of the, uh, of the economic base. What you'll find is that the retail portion, not substantially different in Danville relative to the rest of the Commonwealth, and you'll find that the healthcare segment, healthcare being hospitals, hospitals are big employers in many cities. Uh, I've already mentioned I, uh, my family. I went to high school in Campbell County. You should know that the two largest employers in the Lynchburg area are the hospital and the greater Falwell Ministries and the university. So our, our structure does not look substantially different in terms of health care. But I want to focus you on the manufacturing numbers. Note that 30% of the population and employment base here in Danville is in manufacturing versus uh, just about a third of that in the rest of the Commonwealth. Manufacturing is great. Manufacturing is a great base for, uh, for you to have business, to, I'm sorry, growth in a community to raise the level because manufacturing provides oftentimes uh, high wages uh, for low skill work, generally speaking, and provides uh, an opportunity for you to expand uh, the productivity of a product across a broad base. Works very, very well. At the same time, there's a cautionary tale. Manufacturing also comes with it a risk. And if we think about the types of businesses in the community as being like a portfolio of products, a portfolio of investments, that communities make investments in the education that they will have and the jobs that people will build their lives around. When we think about those things as investments, we think about manufacturing, and we think about those three industries I just mentioned. Tobacco, textiles, and uh, support for the automobile industry. With each one of those manufacturing bets, a community is, in fact, uh, taking risk. And if you have an overrepresentation in a sector, while it can be very fruitful for a period, it may also again, if we think about this notion of portfolio investing, uh, create some degree of risk. Because if it happens to be that you've been building uh, your economy on industries that find themselves in a tough spot, 
then thus will be the experience of the community around you. Again, I think this is, these are things you all know. Um, and I'm sure you've been talking about them. I've read that you've been talking about them. But they were helpful for me in framing why entrepreneurship might be a model of usefulness. I also took some look at some other indicators. Again, I don't think these should be things that should surprise you. The magnitudes may be new for you, but the, but the relationships may not be. Um, you know, again, the educational, uh, the educational attainment of the area, um, the amount of people that are working, the poverty rate. Again, these are things from what I've been reading and knowing you all have been thinking and talking about. And some of these elements have been affected by some of these challenges that the tobacco industry or the textile industry, as two examples, have had. Um, the Goodyear plant in your community. Uh, this, as I understand it, is, was the second largest Goodyear plant in the country in terms of employees. Um, when something happens to a plant like that, uh, it can create reverberations on uh, the numbers of people that have ties to that company. What I want to share with you is the rest of the Commonwealth comparison. And again, I don't think there's much you all might find surprising. The magnitudes might be interesting to you. If you go down this list of the types of questions, the types of data I look at when I look at a, a community, I find that on virtually every measure there, and this is not an exhaustive list, Danville has some challenges. Here's the good news. That's what I do. That's where I go. Um, so when the, the description follows that this is a guy who's interested in talking, thinking about, engaging with places where there's challenge. Well, then that's where I want to be. Um, it's easy to talk about entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley on Route 128 um, in Northern Virginia, because those are places where a lot of the elements are already in place. What's more interesting to me, and what I get excited about every morning, is going to the places where there's actually some interesting questions that have to be answered. And we'll come around at the end as to why this is more, again, than just a research interest of mine when I talk a little bit more about my center. Self-employment. This is that place where I throw out a question to the group. Um, one of the indicators I look at is how much self-employment is there in this particular community. So I'd ask you, in general, Population of the U.S., the average, if you take the whole U.S. as a whole, 10% of the population is self-employed. Who wants to make a wager guess on what the Danville, Pennsylvania County community might look like? The highest rate in the Commonwealth is 18.3%. So if you were thinking about self-employment, the most, and you were calling that entrepreneurship, the most entrepreneurial community would be Newport News. Now, clearly you can read, you can see that Danville, Pennsylvania differ uh, by just a couple of hundreds of a percent. So there's maybe one or two more people in, one, in the county uh, than in the city or vice versa to lead to that. But it's basically about the same. And you can see also that this is not the least entrepreneurial community in the Commonwealth. This is out of the 138 communities that uh, make up either a city or county in the Commonwealth. Here's something I want to say. This conversation is about entrepreneurship, but I am not here to suggest that if your percentage of entrepreneurs is higher than 18%, that that's the best thing. What I'm here to say is that these are, if we think again of a portfolio of economic activities in a community, then I'm saying to you that we want to think about entrepreneurship, homegrown entrepreneurship, as a part of that portfolio. And I want to say to you that if we thought about a society, we thought about a community that was 100% employment, jobs coming from existing multinational firms, and we thought about a community that was 100% entrepreneurship, neither of these would be optimal. Large firms have wonderful efficiencies. They're bigger. I mean, the way the analogy I often use is that two things. It's harder to sink an aircraft carrier than a dinghy. If the water's rough, the aircraft carrier wiggles a little bit, 
but it doesn't have the same experience that the dinghy does. When the economy is rough, it is in fact the dinghies, the smaller firms that'll flip, that'll jump, the aircraft carrier won't. Now let me flip that around. It's easier to turn the dinghy than it is to turn the aircraft carrier. So if we need to move, if we need to change, if we need to do something different, the dinghy turns. This is the point. Neither is perfect in every situation, but a mix in a portfolio is what you want to start thinking about. Now, when I think about a community like Danville, then, given some of the information that we've talked about, I think it's important then to think about entrepreneurship as a part of the portfolio. That's my case for entrepreneurship. Now we're going to move to a different question. Great, I've convinced you. You all came to a conversation about entrepreneurs as change agents. You could argue I didn't need to convince you. What I need to do is tell you a little bit about how this does and doesn't happen. There's a story we all know. Some of you, again, may have thought I was going to talk about this story tonight. That's the story of the hero entrepreneur, an individual who overcomes significant odds to create this amazing firm and amazing wealth. And if you happen to hear about it at the right time, then you got to come along for the ride. And I can tell you that story. I think you read that story. I think you know that story. I think you've seen that story in movies. I'm not here to tell that story. I'm here to tell and propose a different story. I'm here to tell and propose a story that it is, in fact, a community around an entrepreneur that creates the opportunity. There's a wonderful uh, reading, for instance, um, whether you like or don't like, Malcolm Gladwell's book, current book that he has out, talks a lot about Bill Gates came through at a certain period of time where there were lots of reasons why he and his friends were able to begin to think about creating firms of the type that they, they did. He was able to spend time as a kid uh, playing around with a very low-tech computer. And there was enabling technology that came in at the right moment. I could continue with the same conversation about Carnegie. I could, we could make that case again and again. Here's what I'm here to propose. I'm here to propose that entrepreneurship happens. Certainly there are these hero individuals. But that entrepreneurship happens when, in fact, there are a combination of necessary factors. There's the right technology in place. And again, I gave an example. That technology could be the rise of a certain type of computing that allows for someone to think about the creation of a certain type of software. The internet and the ability to wirelessly connect has been one of these virtuous technological advances. Secondly, talent. Does the community you are operating in have, and I mean two things when I say talent, labor, knowledge? Do you have those two things to create opportunities for businesses? So communities have numbers of people, but do the people you have have the training that's necessary? You've certainly heard that before. I want to go one more. Do the people in your community have belief, motivation, risk-taking? Do they feel like those things are possible? Are they people who feel like they can challenge and question the status quo? And if they're not, then you might have a challenge in terms of the talent that you have. Are the customers there? The customers may not be local. The customers could be, in fact, in a different place. And by the way, for a lot of developing communities, my argument is you want to think about customers that are elsewhere. If you can get somebody that's not in your community to, to pay for something you create here, all the better. That's why manufacturing of a certain type works so well to grow communities. Infrastructure, that's a lot of things. It's about having the right government. It's about having the right associations and organizations. But it's as simple as roads. Now, I will tell you, and those of us who've been around long enough to remember, Lynchburg, Charlottesville. When I go back to the 1970s and I think about the size of the economy in Lynchburg and I think about the size of the economy in Charlottesville, well, let me tell you which one was smaller. Let me tell you that that's flipped. Some of that is the knowledge economy, and some of that is there was a highway decision that occurred, Interstate 64. And there was a decision, for those of you who are old enough to remember, about where 64 would go. Infrastructure matters. And that's just a very simple physical example, but there are many, many other ways I could play that out for you. Risk capital. Banks are great. Banks are important. We'll come to banks. Risky capital, critical. 
Lots of rural communities, that's why I'm a part of the Ford Rural Equity Project. Rural communities, post-industrial communities, suffer from the ability to have risk capital available. And that's one of the things that I would argue is an important factor. We'll come around to what I mean by that. Case for connections. I'm going to show you, we've talked about some of these things, I'm going to show you physical space. Communities matter often in the physical space. This is a map of the greater Danville, Pennsylvania County area. What you need to know rather than the percentages is that I, I showed you poverty rates for the entire area. What's also interesting to look at is where things are located. And so those darker areas are the high poverty areas in uh, your community. These darker areas are the areas of uh, educational differences in education in your community. Again, percentage is less important than distribution. Home ownership. One of the biggest drivers of the ability for individuals to spur entrepreneurial growth is do you have homeowners? Homeowners are so critical because the number one, the largest asset in the home of the average American household, I'm sorry, in the average American household is in fact the home. And home equity is a wonderful thing that banks like to see when people come in and ask for money from a bank. So the ability to have home ownership in your community is a key driver of the ability for people with ideas to be able to find capital that can support those ideas. Um, there's the home ownership uh, distribution. Now, when you think about these things, what I want you to think about is it is, in fact, the way a community fits together that matters. And space matters. Rural areas have some different challenges than urban areas. I travel to a lot of places around the country. Urban areas have the benefit of closeness. Proximity is an incredibly big advantage for someone thinking about an entrepreneurial business in an, in an urban area. Why? Your customers are right around the corner. They're within one square mile, millions of them in some cases. Your employees are right around the block. Your ideas, when you're thinking about creating something, there are people literally, physically, just a stone's throw away that can challenge your ideas, that can tell you you're wrong. Now, if you're not in an urban area and you're in a rural area, you have to think about how you create that virtuous proximity, how you create a market for ideas. Proximity and density allow people to experiment. They create connections. They create disagreement. And disagreement is good for business ideas. We don't want groupthink when we're thinking about new firms because we're talking about new ideas. And we want to test them rigorously before we put money and support for them. Um, experience is another key factor for communities. When communities get used to having entrepreneurial ventures, they get used to the idea that some will succeed and some will fail. And they become comfortable with that notion. Now, I will tell you that when I think of Campbell County, there's not a lot of experience with starting firms, growing them big, or having them fail. Communities have to become comfortable with that. And they have to become comfortable moving away from this notion that, in fact, there are a few families. There are few families in the community that are those that tend to run and start and grow businesses. When I think of Campbell County, I can tell you the names of those families. That's great. That's wonderful to have that base. But if, in fact, that base is, is stable, finite, and doesn't change a lot generation after generation, you got a problem. There isn't experience with this notion that firms can be grown and that people can start them. Local ideas. You know, it's wonderful when a Walmart comes in. There's a big one on 29 in Campbell County. It employs a lot of people. What I will tell you is there is something different in people's minds and experience when a business grows within the community. Attracting large anchors in, great. Continue to do it. It's the right thing. And let's think about, I think communities need to think about how they can actually foster something locally. Here's the part about the entrepreneur's change agent. When the entrepreneur is grown from within the community, 
the entrepreneurship knows a lot, the entrepreneur knows a lot more about how to assist his or her community after their firm is growing. They know the people to hire because they've known them for years. They know who to call on for business assistance because they've known them for years. And you know what? They know who not to call on. Those are reasons that local entrepreneurial growth is, are important. You get by with a little help from your friends. Doesn't mean I'm a Beatles fan. What it does mean is this. These ideas, the way these firms grow, we've, we've got to break the mold and the attitude that they're just, we've, we've had a story that is there's this special person who rises up. They used to throw newspapers when they were five years old and they used to sell candy to everyone on the bus and they grew up and became an entrepreneur and now they run this big company. And everybody knows somebody like that. I know the guy that used to sell the candy on the bus when I took the bus. But this idea of how a firm comes up that actually produces wealth and jobs for people have a lot more to do with lots of people that aren't necessarily in that story. And they are bankers. And they are government officials who find ways to help the infrastructure do what it needs to do. And they are people who are part of an informal set of relationships. Connections matter. These notions of what we call social capital are important. There's a book by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. Anybody know this book? When you bowl alone, you don't have opportunities to build relations and trust. And let me tell you, economic markets, financial markets are predicated under the notion of trust. When people in our community cease to trust the institutions that are there, we will cease to be able to operate as an economy. And we cannot bowl alone. I think Putnam's book is important, but I personally think we need to start bowling in leagues again. Um, capital. So um, I've already talked a little bit about debt. I've talked about banks. With all due respect, let me say this. Banks give money to people who are good risk. Now you'll hear people use the other statement, banks give money to people that have money. Here's the truth of the matter. Banks aren't chartered to be risk takers. You don't want to put your money, your trust, in somebody that you know is taking those dollars that you might need at a later date and throwing them to the neatest idea somebody approaches them with. When you look at these things, banks think about how credit worthy you are and bottom line, can you pay me back? And if I don't wonder if you can pay me back, if you got a home I can go get, I want it. Those are what they think about. If you go get money from a bank, they're not going to meddle in your business as long as you continue to pay the note. They're not going to tell you how to run your business. You can be strategically free. Who cares? Just make sure you pay me. If you do something else, though, and this is the key part for rural and developing areas, it's equity. A lot of people come to the banks and say, the banks need to give us some more money. You banks aren't putting the money out into the community. You got to understand what banks are about. A different question is, what about equity? Equity is a different thing. Equity is meant to be risky. And the people who are involved in equity make their business in thinking about and listening to and challenging and doubting new, crazy, nutty ideas. Equity is about convincing someone to share with you this opportunity. Bad news about equity, you give somebody equity, they got their fingers all in your mix. You got some cooks trying to spoil the broth. But those cooks may be giving you assistance. They may give you knowledge. They may give you information. So one of the things I do when I travel is I go to Latin America. I go to low-income communities in Appalachia. I go to places around the country, Native American reservations, and we talk about the importance of equity in growing businesses and community-based equity. And my, my thought is that far too many communities like Danville have, first of all, limited options on the debt side and even more limited options on the equity side. And the equity side doesn't get as much attention, as much discussion, as much thought as it possibly could.
We can talk more about that at the end. Um, what about, so people wonder, you know, gee, uh, gee, Greg, you know, money's tight. Uh, it's hard for anybody to get money in an economy like this. Where in the world could we get sources to do these types of things? Well, some of the dollars from these organizations you see there are already in this community and nearby communities. I don't know how many of you know about these organizations. Certainly the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, the CDFI Fund. Anybody know about this? Part of the Department of the Treasury. These are finance institutions designed, targeted, explicitly regulated against the question of how we produce uh, capital in low-income areas. And a big portion of it is equity. The USDA, we know of the USDA as your extension agent. Anybody old enough to remember Green Acres? Okay. So we know the extension agent. But what we need to also know is that the USDA for years has had programs to build businesses in rural areas. People in here know about that? There are dollars out there that you want to tap into that can help you create institutions to help build the types of communities you'd like to have. Um, the New Marcus Tax Credit Fund. Now, this is a more recent initiative. It came out of the Clinton administration. But the New Markets Tax Credit Initiative is, in fact, this notion that there are public-private ventures that allow for tax credits if people do work in what are called new markets, places that have long been overlooked. And then finally, um, Foundations, the MacArthur Foundation, I should tell you, in addition to funding research, part of the reason my research is of interest, my work is of interest to them, in addition to NPR, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, what you also may not know is the MacArthur Foundation is a big funder of what are called program-related investments. These are investments made by their foundation in financial institutions that do the types of community building finance we've talked about. They'll, for instance, give a very low interest loan to an organization that's attempting to build new economies because they know that's harder to do. They'll give those organizations equity. In the decade between 1990 and 2000, the MacArthur Foundation put $220 million in program-related investments in community development organizations. It's another way that found, we have this notion of foundations giving grants for programs. What some foundations also do is they give money to fund people to go out and do investing, people who know about investing. Um, here's a map. I want to show you this map. Again, this is stuff I figure some people in the room already know, but I want to tell you about it. This right here is the HUD program qualified census tracts, census tracts where you could, in fact, get HUD funding for certain types of equity ventures. Now, you'll note the biggest portion of the map coincides, by the way, with those portions of the maps I showed earlier, is this area here to the right. Now, you say, gee, okay, housing and urban development, they've got money for activity in the urban core. What you may also may not have known is the New Markets Tax Credit has money for the rural areas uh, that surround your community's wealth. And so, in fact, this map is now flipped. It's these other areas. Now, there are other forms of funding that fill in some that weren't a part of either map. The New Markets Tax Credit Program is quite substantial, and the amounts that flow are quite substantial, but it's a bare an application process to get one. Uh, there are people that know how to do it. Now I think it's a good time to talk about exemplars. I said I was going to talk to you about entrepreneurs. I am but I'm going to talk to you about entrepreneurs that are financial entrepreneurs. I'm going to talk to you about entrepreneurs that have created entities that do the type of work we're talking about. And they have funded individual entrepreneurs. So in a way, we're talking about two levels of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship in creating an institution and entrepreneurship in institutions that create new businesses. Ray Moncrief. Anybody know Kentucky Highlands Investment Corporation? Kentucky Highlands is in London, Kentucky. That's where they're based. But their charter is to operate in five states that are Appalachian counties, including the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now, it's wonderful somebody knew about them. Look at the amount of money they've put out over the years, and they continue to put out. 
and they get in bed. I love this comment. Now, here's the thing. They've been doing this and creating businesses in Appalachia in lumber. I went down, I saw the neatest thing. The part of London, Kentucky. Now, London, Kentucky is known for one thing famously. Does anybody know? Trivia question? Famous business based in London, Kentucky. Started out in London, Kentucky. Kentucky Fried Chicken. If you go to London, Kentucky, you can see the Kentucky Fried Chicken Museum. I would recommend it. Now, in addition to seeing the Kentucky Fried Chicken Museum, you can go and learn about Kentucky Highlands. And this is an organization that, in fact, has gone out and focused on rural development working with rural business owners. I went and saw a business. This is mining country. Talk again about industries that people have focused on and taken bets on mining. And you could imagine some of the challenges of mining. What they did was they funded a business, a business owner, who had created a pod that if you are a miner and you become trapped, this pod provides you 10 days of oxygen, of water, base food, and has a locator so that you could be easily found up top. Now, how many times have you heard these stories on the news about somebody trapped in a mine? They don't know if they're alive. They don't know if they can communicate with them. They fund a business that, in fact, deals with that problem, but does it in a way that's important for people in their own community. Okay? Another thing, Kentucky, if we talk sports, we might say, well, Derby would be the more recent. Basketball. Adolph Rupp. Okay. So here's the deal. They funded an entrepreneur because basketball is so huge in Kentucky who covers in cable local high school basketball in the state of, in the state of Kentucky. This is Kentucky and Indiana. These are places where people watch basketball all the time. So what they realized was there was a connection to a business, a business that recruiters would be interested in, a business that average folks would be interested in, a, a business that if I'm a business owner, small business owner in one part of Kentucky, and I want to reach some people in another part of Kentucky, there's a locally produced content that we could use as an advertising base. That's the type of thing they funded. In both instances, you're talking businesses that have technology, but tie into the reality of the community. They've got an equity fund. You can read the details. It's good to know somebody knows them. That's wonderful. Um, this came out of, remember that tour Bobby Kennedy does when he goes through Appalachia? This came out of, the creation of this organization came out of that program. And they've lived, they've survived, they've grown. He's on the Rural Equity Project at the Ford Foundation. Midwest Minnesota Community Development Corporation. You see this guy right here? That's Arlen Congas. Arlen came home. Arlen is from, this is the North Dakota, Minnesota line right near Fargo. Arlen, rural, um, low income, many of the same stats that I pulled up about Danville, those stats apply to that area too. And this man, Arlen Congas, goes off and gets an, an economics degree. Um, in uh, Washington State. Learns to run numbers like crazy. Comes back to, comes back home because a family member is ill, actually. While he's there, he goes to church and somebody says, you know, uh, there's this fund that people in the community have created and they need an accountant. Wonder if you'd like to come over and take the job. He agrees to take the job. Goes to the very first meeting very first meeting of the fund. I think it's like $7 million. And in the very first meeting, they decide that um, it's a loan fund, actually, not an equity fund, loan fund. They decide in the very first meeting that three quarters of the investments they have made, I'm sorry, of the loans they've made are no longer performing. And so the $7 million fund is actually only worth a million and a half. And uh, they soon quickly shutter the fund and Arlen is required to go through the technical process of closing it down. The story could have ended there. What Arlen does, though, is he begins thinking about, we have this entity. How can we grow this entity? And he begins having conversations with the USDA. Before you know it, 
In less than three years, Arlen is testifying before Congress about rural economic development and USDA policy. And he gets the first of $4 million, he gets a $4 million allotment to create an, a loan fund for this part of Minnesota. Now, this organization now, um, it's about uh, 20 people and uh, just about $2 billion in assets. Um, that new markets tax credit thing I told you about, they just got, they've had over $200 million in new markets tax credit allotments. And they use those dollars to do all kinds of either equity investments or uh, deals, oftentimes with private partners. Lumber, big part of that area. Um, I went and saw a business, a chip manufacturer, Pringles. How many of you guys have seen Pringles? Of course you have. Pringles are fried. Pringles are, uh, but what's nice about them is they're all the same shape and they can be packaged very easily. They have developed a $7 million facility with an equity investment on a Native American reservation that would employ 60 people and is this country's only <coughs> baked chip plant in the country. They would do baked chips very similar to Pringles, and they actually taste good. And so I go in and I see this plant, and it's going to employ 60 people, and they've already begun talking to uh, major corporations about doing this type of production once they prove it can work. I mean, just that simple. It looks like a Pringle, but it's baked, which means it's more healthy. That doesn't exist right now. Um, this woman here, Julie, this woman right here in the middle, she runs that new market tax credit fund. She has uh, degrees that would impress you. And she came home to work in this fund. And she's part of the reason they were able to get that $200 million. She manages that. They've done a couple of hotels. They are doing lots of very interesting things I could continue to tell you about. This woman here, Kathy. Kathy runs uh, mortgages. I talked about home ownership and the importance of it. She has a, I think it's about a $30 million home mortgage portfolio. Um, and to people that normally don't get mortgages. And by the way, they're partnered with many of the existing banks to help do those mortgages for customers that the bank just can't do. I've already said there's certain risks banks can't take. But these organizations can take them and they're chartered to do so and they partner with banks. So when that person steps into the bank and says, I need a mortgage loan, and, they say, and the bank says, we can't, the bank also says, maybe these people can. So let me help you out. Um, in 2001, they purchased a consumer bank. So they've got a bank too. Their bank is on a huge Native American reservation. And it is an amazing thing to see. Uh, so they, in fact, have a bank with deposits and everything that are really bringing banking to a Native American community, which heretofore had uh, lots of challenges around people even having a bank account. Okay. Citizen Potawatomi. Anybody know the Potawatomi Nation? The Potawatomi Nation is a um, Native American tribe. I went to Tecumseh, Oklahoma. And I visited with the Potawatomis. And that man at the top is Rocky Barnett. He is the chairman of the Potawatomi Nation. I say that because he's an elected official. There are 26,000 Potawatomis in the country. Um, but they, the majority do not live in Oklahoma. They live around the country. In fact, there is a Potawatomi representative for this part of Virginia, for, for the state of Virginia and surrounding states. But here's the story about Rocky Barnett. He grows up in uh, Oklahoma, in Tecumseh. His tribe has declined to two and a half acres and seven people. Rocky goes off to Princeton. Sharp student. Goes away to Princeton, studies there, comes back home. Uh, they now uh, have, again, something like uh, $180 million dollars. Uh, in their community development corporation. Um, the Potawatomis that live in Tecumseh, Oklahoma, at one point were the poorest. The Potawatomis, the Native Americans, if you look at the census data for Tecumseh, they actually have higher per capita and in household incomes than the rest of the population in the area. 
So some of you are wondering whether this is gaming money. And in fact, there's a gaming aspect to it. But more importantly, and, and there is absolutely a gaming aspect to it, but more importantly, the money coming out of gaming has led to these financial entities that help people in building uh, individual development accounts, IDAs, help people in starting businesses. I went to visit another business that they had invested in. And um, just a fascinating story. Uh, for me, he was an inspiring person because look at him. If any of you ran into Rocky Barnett, would you guess that he might be Native American? It's a man who arrives at Princeton, has, has made it, if you will. He decides to go back home and he decides because he cares about this part of his life. And he comes back and he starts this organization and it funds and grows businesses. The three organizations I've shown you and the three are entrepreneurial organizations that create entrepreneurs. The people that run, a, run each one of these, I've told you stories of individuals, but each one of these individuals is surrounded by really sharp people. Somehow in each one of these stories, they were able to recognize that there could be this entity, this infrastructure. But they also recognized that we need the right people. And some of those people are people that are from our community that live elsewhere now. They have talents and skills and knowledge that they could bring home and assist. And they found the right people and they brought them together and they're creating businesses. This is what I do. It's what I spend my time doing. I will tell you the Commonwealth of Virginia has very few CDFIs, relatively speaking, and very few large CDFIs. I'm not here to pitch CDFIs. I am here to pitch. Let's think about the way we have institutions and communities that grow businesses. Institutions that are composed of the people that are part of the community, institutions that touch various aspects of the community, institutions that provide, importantly, capital. And equity capital is overlooked to get that done. Two final thoughts. Um, here's my case. Entrepreneurship, as a sector of your portfolio, as, a, as part of the portfolio of businesses in your community, it allows for a greater degree of control. People that are local make decisions about the businesses that are there. Number two, it allows for diversification. Entrepreneurial businesses often are different. They do different things. They tie into different communities. I know you've been able to attract some very interesting businesses here. A couple of them are right up the road. Well, having those businesses spur from this community, run by people in this community, is a part of the diversification you want to have. Um, you can't have great entrepreneurs without great communities. And so this idea of there's some hero that does this on her own, his own, and it just ain't true. It's this surrounding effect. Lines of communication have to be open in a community. It's hard to do. People know each other for a long time, and in the South we're always polite. And as polite as we are, there are times where we have to be hard on each other. And there are times we have to say the truths that we don't like to hear. We need to find forums and ways that that type of communication in a broad-based and open way can happen. Capital, you need it. I think I can't say more. Exemplars, I've shown you these examples. These folks, I can tell you, Ray Moncrief would be one of them, would love to come here and talk to you about what they've done to show you how they've done it, because they believe they are passionate about the growth of communities like your own. And they believe it does have to be done locally. So if you imitate them, they are incredibly flattered and incredibly happy. And I'm more than happy to be involved in helping that happen, which brings me to um, Taylor Murphy. Uh, so the relaunch of the Taylor Murphy Center at Darden happens this July. Um, I'll be leading that. This is Taylor Murphy's uh, history up there at the top. I've already talked about some of those things. Here's what we're going to do. As the center relaunches, we're focused on this notion of community competitiveness. How can communities compete in a global market? And um, we are very interested in building connections. I, as I walk in the building, it's great to see Averett is here and Virginia Tech is here. It's wonderful. I think it'd be wonderful if the University of Virginia would have a greater role here. I had lunch the other day. Uh, with the, uh, the dean of the engineering school, uh, Dean Ayler. I know that there has been some involvement here in this arena, but heretofore, to be honest with you, my institution, the Darden School, has not been here. We are one of the leading business schools in the country, and I've often, as I've traveled, heard the story that Darden is a school that is in the state of Virginia and not of the state of Virginia. I know that. My dean knows that. 
We have a different mission. Part of the mission of the center and part of the mission of our activity will be to tie into communities like yours and to find ways to contribute to the education but the connections that can foster some of these businesses. I'd love to see a conference around these ideas here. I'd love for the Taylor Murphy Center to be a part of that. Um, I'd love for some of you to come visit with us in Charlottesville, meet some of my colleagues, talk about some of the things we do. Um, I believe that there is best practice in economic development. I'm traveling the country and going in lots of places, but I believe this area is and can be the place where best practice is actually evidenced. It's part of what we're about. Oh, so the, I'm being told I need to repeat the question to make sure we catch it for the audio. Um, so the question was, um, the question was, what have I seen as I've traveled, um, and what kind of indicators might it give me for challenges in a community like Danville? And I, I, again, full disclosure, I haven't been in this ground in this area for 25 years. The obstacles are similar, and I, you know, I can drive an hour up to Campbell County, and I suspect it's about the same thing. Um, you might have some changeable features, but it's about the same thing. And if I were to, to say, I think some of the things I suspect are, um, first, I know for a fact you all are talking about these challenges. That's the greatest first piece. I know you have a commission, uh, and I know you have a number of foundations that are thinking about these things. First question I have for communities is how large is that discourse? Who's in the room? Who's not in the room tonight? Who should have been here that wasn't? Um, those, that's one of the first questions I ask is look around and see who ain't here and if there's some people that should have been, that's a, that's a question, that's a finding. Second finding that I have is um, after we have that discussion about who needs to be in the room, we need to have some recognition that there's some stuff going on that we just might not know about and we need to bring that knowledge to us. Sometimes that's people, sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, actual institutions, but they need to think about how that does and doesn't happen. I think thirdly, fear. I mean, I, 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 I gotta tell you guys this way. Um, I, you know, I've lived in a lot of places since leaving Brookville High School in, in the early 80s. And I'll tell you that um, when I first left and I, and I went north, I was amazed, for instance, at just how people felt like things could happen. I will tell you that when I was in Campbell County, you know, there's this idea there are some people who are in business, and if you weren't in that story, you just weren't in that story. This idea that you could try to do it too. That you could be the person just doesn't happen enough. Another short story. The day I'm graduating Darden, I graduated Darden in the early 90s. The day I'm graduating Darden, my mother and I are standing at the Darden, and there's a big field at Darden. I'm standing there after graduation, and my mother says, you got this wonderful degree. You're going to work at Procter & Gamble. You'll go away to Procter & Gamble for a while, and then you can come back home. And you know what I said to my mother? I said, um, unfortunately, because I'm going to Procter & Gamble and I'm entering a certain type of business world, I can't get a job like the job I would have at Procter & Gamble or I would expect to get after being at Procter & Gamble and be back here. Now, while that's true if we think about whether there's a large multinational company that can employ a marketing executive in uh, Campbell County or even this, this whole sector of the Commonwealth. The bigger question is, if I had thought it was possible to start and grow a firm in my community, I might have answered differently. And that's what I hope, that's what I pray, that's what I'm looking to see, that's what I'm looking to foster. That might change that discussion, because I don't know your community, but the other thing you're exporting in addition to products is people, I suspect. I suspect you got some young folks here who say, I can't wait till I get out. And if that's the case, you gotta shift that. And one of the ways is, we can do it here too. You're making a compelling case for creating a community around individual entrepreneurs. Yes, sir. And I'm glad you ended on education. I'd like to know, where does, where does higher ed play into this? 
Can you tell us about that? Because I didn't see that in your first chart, and I'd be interested. So, um, so I did highlight um, both the high school uh, sort of. It, it's really what I showed was the percentage of the population that doesn't finish high school, and I showed the percentage of the population that does have a college degree. Gave you the two ends of the spectrum, right? I think that, um, and, and clearly, you know, the data are there. You're higher on the percentage that don't finish, and you're uh, lower on the percentage that go to college. I think that this idea that entrepreneurship and, and job development following entrepreneurship has to be built on the backs of a bunch of people with PhDs is a mistake. I think there are a number of undervalued assets in our educational system. I think that uh, the community college system is an undervalued asset. Here's the other thing I would say. In addition to the knowledge we provide, it is the relationships we create. The networks that are created through alumni relationships. The reason some of you are in here has to do with networks in relations to an institution called UVA, and I was really glad to see a lot of you ain't UVA people. But those networks and relationships are as critical and important as what happens in the classroom. And so if it's the University of Virginia, but if it's an institution where there's, there's education and learning, but we find a way to connect people and keep them together, then you're doing what I think needs to happen. And sometimes it is these, these entities that create programs that are educational, that are network-based, that make the connections and keep people together. And, and people want to be a part of them because they, they associate excellence with those institutions. And again, you know, uh, uh, at the risk of too hard a pitch, I'd like to see my institution be more involved in those questions in my commonwealth. Um, I'm sorry, I gotta, I gotta choose, sir. Yes, sir. And with the high emphasis on industrial, we have like 50%. Yes, sir. The Commonwealth was 30%. Yes, sir. With the difference being the lower industrial. Where is the 20%? Mm. Is that what we're after? 20% even things Um. Well, to clarify... Um, when I took those top three sectors, those are the top three sectors for the rest of the Commonwealth. And what you're right about is um, in the Danville, Pennsylvania County area, those three represent 54% of all the um, employment base. In the Commonwealth as a whole, you're right, 33. I'm actually suggesting something different. I'm suggesting that, and it's, I, I know the history. Uh, the reasons why that 30% is such a big portion, um, well, there's lots of good historical reasons why that's occurred. But I'm actually thinking that um, the percentage is less important than the types of businesses that make up that percentage. I'd like to see them, for a community like this, be as many large multinational firms and the outlets of those multinational firms as they are uh, based firms that started and grow here and aren't in a few sectors of the economy. And so um, the good news, bad news about places is places get known to be a place. They, know, they get known to be, this is one of the tobacco places, this is one of the textile places, this is one of the furniture places. If you want to do those things, you go there. So that's great. But again, if we think about portfolio theory, it's less the percentage. It's how much diversification do we have in our market? I mean, if everything in Silicon Valley really was chips, that wouldn't be good. That'd be a bad thing. But the reality we know is that it starts off as chips, but it's actually quite diversified now. That's the bigger question. And, and if and we looked at the percentage of manufacturing jobs in Silicon Valley, well, that's, that's very high. But it's the range and diversification less than it is the percentage. Helpful? Thank you.
Thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you for Thank welcoming you. us to Danville. And please, let's give uh, Professor Fairchild one more hand of applause. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Fairchild is a small gift from the University of Virginia. Just oh. to thank you for uh, speaking tonight. Thank you for your time and effort. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it.